Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. This is our first episode in the Biden administration. The inauguration was this morning. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. And we're going to talk about some of what we saw today, the inauguration, the speech, how it was similar, how it was different, talk a little bit about pardons, and then spend a little bit of time talking about what we expect to see going forward, what's going to happen, not just today, even though a lot of has happened, but also in the next about 100 days or so. So with that, Joe, welcome, and how do you feel? Oh, Jessica, more than anything, it's an overwhelming sense of relief. We've said this more times than I can count on this very show. This is a nonpartisan statement. It's just relief. It's a big, big sigh. Not to be cheeky, Jessica, but I personally will sleep better tonight knowing that a man who has participated in a professional wrestling match will no longer have access to the nuclear launch code. So, Jessica, relief on my side. How about your side? I feel exactly the same way. I feel the way I did after I passed the California bar exam. I know so many people were elated, and I just felt so, so relieved. And it really shows, I think, how stressed so many of us have been for four years, even though you know we knew after the election who was going to win, even though the election results had been certified. There was just this agonizing period of time in between the election and the inauguration. And it's finally now the Trump administration is over. And it's hard to overstate, I think, again, just relief is the word I would use, the sense of relief that so many of us feel. And so let's talk about a little bit of what we saw today. We did see another inauguration speech. And this is obviously, for a lot of people, the biggest part of the inauguration. So, Joe, what were your thoughts on the speech itself? The speech itself, I saw, this might sound a little bit like lip service. I thought Biden's speech was good. He spoke a lot about unity, which is something that all presidents seem to do at their inauguration speech. But to me, it sounded like unity without pandering. But Joe Biden's speech felt, for the lack of a better word, it felt heartfelt. This is a very welcome change coming out of the executive branch. It also, to me, seemed like uh, there is humanity and humility in that speech. But in contrast to what we've been through, it sounded... It just sounded like anodyne to my ears, Jessica. Yeah, that was really my takeaway in a lot of ways, too, which is if you looked at the speech in isolation, frankly, I think it would have been kind of a pedestrian, serviceable speech. It was a little light on policy. It was heavy on grand statements about unity. But if you look at the speech in the context of where we are, if you look at the speech in the context of just 14 days ago, Our capital was under siege. There was an insurrection. Members of Congress had gas masks on, were sheltering in place. If you look at this speech in the context of the pandemic and the fact that we really have not had acknowledgement on the national level that we're going through a tragedy, that at this point 400,000 Americans have died. Again, if you look at the speech in the context then the calls for unity I think are exactly what we need right now. And President Biden talked about, you know, let's end this uncivil war. And so for me, one of the things I really took away from it is he said, look at me, give me a chance, look at my heart. If you don't agree with me after, okay, so be it. That's democracy. But one of the things I really think he's trying to do is get us to a place where we all at least agree on the ground rules. So we all at least agree, you know, this is the field. Now let's play a fair game. But in contrast to 
as far as I can see, basically every other inauguration, we're in a place as Americans where we're arguing about what the truth is, what's up, what's down, what's left, and what's right. So we have to, that's the foundational thing that I think he's acknowledging. We have to get to a place where at least the majority of us can accept what the truth is, and then we can have that old policy debate, which frankly I yearn for. Let's have a real debate about taxes. Let's have a real vigorous debate about criminal justice reform and the best way to serve our country. But a lot of what I heard was let's come together and let's come together from a common place. And Joe, the next thing I want to ask you about is that the inauguration, of course, it's not just the speech, but it's also the show. It's also who comes to the show. And the people on the dais this time around looked more like Americans for a lot of different reasons. And I'll give you my thoughts in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask you, talk to us just a little bit about how important it is that we saw a different type of representation up there on the platform. Yes, Jessica, both in the attendees and in the participants in this, we have the first female member of the executive branch, Kamala Harris, former California senator, sworn in as America's first female vice president. That is a big, big moment. It took us 244 years to get a woman in the executive branch. It is really important, as you said. It's important that the people on the stage look more like America. And I think in my life, I actually have underestimated how important it is that people in power look like the rest of us. And that's in part because I was used to walking into rooms where there were always women and people of color in rooms of power. But Joe, I know you and I have a little bit of a pet peeve when it comes to talking about Vice President Kamala Harris and how She's the first vice president who is a female, who's a woman of color, who's of Southeast Asian descent, who's of African-American descent. And everybody says it's so important for the girls. And I absolutely agree. It's deeply, deeply important that everybody can look on stage and say, that person looks like me. And they're in the most important rooms in the entire world. But I also think we do a disservice when we don't acknowledge it's important for the boys. It's important for everybody to say, this is what it looks like to be in power. And that's, you know, as they say, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. But Joe, I know, I think, I don't want to put words into your mouth that you feel the same way. Absolutely. I think it's essential, Jessica. And I agree with you. We hear all the time when women get to positions of power like that, they break the glass ceiling, they get to the other side and people say, well, it's great that little girls, just like you said, can see that that person is up there making those types of decisions for everybody. Now, I think what's important, what we saw today, the little boys absolutely need to see that as well, because men need to understand that they can be led by a woman, by a smart woman, a competent woman, an an accomplished woman. It's just as important for the men to see that as well, both young and old. And you know what? I had this moment where I was looking at Vice President Kamala Harris the first female vice president being sworn in by Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the first Latina Supreme Court Justice. And I felt two emotions at the same time. I thought, yes, this is America. 
This is not because they're women and not because they're people of color, but because they're incredibly accomplished and smart women and people of color. This is the best of us and what we should be proud of. And then I thought, how on earth is it 2021 and we're still using the terms first when it comes to a job that so many people have had before? There have been a number of vice presidents. There have been a lot of Supreme Court justices. And it shows you change can happen, but it's not overnight. And um, it, I, I was taken by the fact that, again, it's 2021, and we're still talking about historic firsts. We have massive underrepresentation when it comes to both gender and racial issues. And Joe, I know that for both of us were taken by uh, the Youth Poet Laureate, as they referred to her, Amanda Gorman. She shared her poem, The Hill We Climb. What was your favorite line from that poem? Man, breakout star of the day, I think, Amanda Gorman. It's a name we're going to be hearing a lot about in the future. And I'm starting to hear, I think I saw someone said uh, Gorman 2024 or something like that, bouncing around the socials. But the line that I took away, I think was near the end of the poem. She said, quote, for there is always light if we're only brave enough to see it, if we're only brave enough to be it. Such powerful words from someone of any age, but also coming from someone so young, a 22-year-old young poet. And I think she specifically says, I want to be on this stage one day being sworn in as president. She didn't use those words, but I thought that was fantastic. And the line for me that stuck out probably was, somehow we have weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. Because it acknowledges everything we've been through, and it provides hope and optimism for where I hope we are going. And... Let's talk a little bit more about the inauguration. We've talked about the speech. We've talked about the representation of the people on the stage. Let's talk a little bit about what was the same and what was different. I feel like, you know, those, um, in a way, those kids' magazines. There's two pictures, you know, pick out similarities and differences. And obviously, the backdrop of this inauguration is different in so many ways. But, Joe, watching at home, What struck you in terms of the similarities and differences this time around? The biggest difference to me, Jessica, we saw, as per usual, almost all the living presidents and their spouses on that stage. President Carter and his wife opted to not come. They are elderly and with a pandemic raging, the numbers being bad right now, they opted to stay home. Likely the right choice there. But the other no-show was the most significant thing for me, President, former President Donald Trump, did not attend. He, in fact, left Washington before this whole inauguration took place. Right as uh, they were marching people out onto the stage this morning, Air Force One was landing in Florida, where the president will now, the former president will take up residence. Keep tripping over who the president is now. So he was not there. Now, this has happened before, but it's been a very, very long time. So this is the first president of the modern age to not show up for the inauguration. Now, he said he wasn't going to show up, so he wasn't exactly a no-show. So we expected that, but that was a big difference. Now, the way this looked, at least to me, like everyone else, I watched this from home. If you were looking at the cameras, looking at the stage, 
everyone on stage who wasn't speaking at the podium at any given time was wearing a mask. Now, compare and contrast to what it would have looked like if this was a Donald Trump re-inauguration. We would have seen, I imagine, lots of people not wearing masks. So you can take that and put that where you like it in terms of what you think about masks and wearing masks. I think it's a good idea. But if you pan that camera around to the audience the other direction out on the, uh, at the mall there below the Capitol... You are looking at a big empty field with a lot of flags and a few people socially distanced out there, also all wearing masks. So very, very different looking either way in terms of this inauguration. That's exactly how I felt in the sense that a lot of things looked the same, particularly the tight shots. You know, there are Bill and Hillary Clinton. There's George W. Bush and Laura Bush and Barack and Michelle Obama, the members of the Supreme Court filing in. And of course, President Trump, a one-term president who did not win the national popular vote, has appointed a third of the Supreme Court as a short aside. So some of this felt very much the same. Supreme Court justices swearing in the president and the vice president calls for unity. But then, of course, there's so much that's different. And the two main differences being we're in the middle of a pandemic and uh, President Biden is taking this seriously. We saw this with his executive orders that we'll talk about in a minute. And we've just been under a siege. We've been under a serious security threat. And so for those two reasons, the the wide angle, so to speak, you know, both literally and figuratively, I think did look very different. Now, Joe, you and I had made a decision. We were actually going to do a separate episode just on the pardons. But because of what happened today in the inauguration, we both came to the feeling that we wanted to do a more forward-looking episode. And Having said that, I do really briefly want to talk about what happened with respect to the 143 pardons that at least were made public last night. And if I think this is the right time for us to kick off that discussion. Yeah, you know, I had made a big list of people that I was going to read off, not just people who we've pardoned in the past 48 hours, but people over the course of his term, former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. Joe Arpaio, the uh, former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, Roger Stone, Duncan Hunter, Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner's father, uh, Charles Kushner. So there's a big, long list of people that were pardoned up till last night. There were a bunch more issued last night. Now, again, the elephant in the room here, Jessica, something that we were going to talk about, we'll talk about a little bit right now, is that big specter of the self-pardon. Now, there's an important detail that I just learned last night from you pardons do not have to be revealed at that time by the president when he's pardoning those people. So that leaves the idea of possible other pardons and a potential self-pardon out there hanging in the air somewhere, does it not? It does, uh, unfortunately. So let me say a couple of things about the pardon power and the pardons that were given out last night, which, of course, we had, as I said, thought about doing a whole separate episode on. Number one, the pardon power is in the Constitution. Article 2, Section 2 very clearly gives the president pardon power. And it's only restricted in the text by the statement that you can't have pardons in the cases of impeachments. We also know, of course, that the pardon power only extends to federal crimes, not to state crimes. And we don't have answers to the question of whether or not the president can self-pardon. And we don't have a specific answer to whether or not a pardon can be secret. So first, let me talk really briefly about the pardons that we know about from last night. We saw some pardons that are 
typical, right? These are the pardons that would go through the office of the pardon attorney and where the Department of Justice would say, yes, in the interest of justice, in the interest of granting mercy, which is the whole purpose of the pardon power, that yes, these people should be pardoned, that maybe the punishment does not fit the crime. And that's where you see um, low-level drug offenders, uh, people who were convicted of nonviolent crimes and sentenced to what seem comparatively to be fairly harsh sentences. And then you see the bucket that's not typical. And the, these are the people who are you know, politicians who were convicted of public corruption, um, white-collar criminals who were engaged in fraud. And, of course, I think the two big names from last night were Elliot Broidy, the big Republican donor, um, and Steve Bannon, President Trump's campaign strategist, who was indicted for defrauding President Trump's donors in a scheme to raise money to build the border wall. So those are the pardons we saw last night. Joe, you asked me about the self-pardon power, which, again, we don't know, and whether or not pardons can be secret. And this is basically where I fall. Pardons should be public. And if you comply with Federal Public Records Act, then I believe that President Biden could make those pardons public now. But I can imagine a scenario in which President Trump didn't comply with public records acts. Now, I don't think any of this happened, but he arguably there is a world in which he could have put a pardon in his pocket and walked out the door. And none of us would ever know about it unless it's used as a defense in a federal criminal case. Now, again, I don't think that that's what happened here, but that is a, as far as I understanding, at least a lingering possibility. So that's our, as I would say to my students, that's our lecture, but a very short version of the pardon episode. And Joe, I know you've talked about this. My feeling is there's so much that we need to do and reform that the pardon power has worked fairly well for the last, you know, hundreds of years now. There's other problems in the Constitution that we need to address. I think that the best solution, and I know this sounds too optimistic, is to elect people who don't push the pardon power to its breaking point. So let's be forward-thinking. Let's move on from pardons and talk briefly about the executive orders. President Biden, there were no inaugural balls. He went straight to the Oval Office. He signed, I believe, 17 executive orders. We're just going to highlight a couple of the areas one, climate change. We are back in the Paris Accord. Two, undoing the travel ban. Three, executive orders that address issues of racial and economic inequality, the national mask mandate, and ending the emergency on the border wall. Those are just a few. But in part, these executive orders are trying to unwind what was done by the Trump administration. And in part, I think they're trying to put the Biden administration stamp on what we're going to do going forward. Joe, were you taken by any of what we already saw in the Oval Office? 
I'm happy to see him, you know, leading in this way if, you know, Biden goes into his presidency without members of his cabinet being approved by the Senate. So if we're going to play these games with Republicans or if they are going to play these games with Republicans and it forces Biden's hand in terms of executive orders, then so be it. If that's going to be the new normal, then I guess that's how we have to get things done. You know, we've got a narrow majority. I should say the Democrats have a narrow majority in the House. They have a razor thin majority in the Senate. As far as the climate is concerned, I'm a big advocate of taking care of the climate. We None of these pieces of paper that any of these things are written on mean a whit if they're all on fire or underwater. So I think that's a really, really great thing. Anything that moves our society to be more equitable and moving forward instead of moving backwards is okay by me. Speaking of that, listeners have heard me say this before, but in a lot of ways, the Trump administration was a stress test on our systems, on our constitution, on our system of government. And this is the time, everyone, to think about those big, bold structural reforms. And so I'm just going to highlight some of the really big areas that I think we all need to start considering and that, Joe, you and I will be talking about and we'll have experts to talk about on future episodes. So one, we need to talk about anti-majoritarian institutions, by which I mean the Senate, uh, by which I mean the Electoral College, by which I mean some aspects of judicial review. Two, statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico. Three, in terms of the Senate, we really have to discuss the filibuster and whether or not this is a procedure that has any future in America. And then this is just someone who's a law professor talking, but we have to address voting rights. If the election showed us anything, we have to address voting rights. We can re-up the Voting Rights Act. We can have a new Voting Rights Act. But we need protections for people who go to the polls, who fill in ballots. And we need to rethink some Supreme Court jurisprudence. We have to rethink this idea that money is speech and that you can't limit spending in politics. I think it's just had disastrous effects on our system of government and our policies and our politics. And so I hope we take this moment to not just say the house is burning, let's put out the fire, but let's look at the blueprint for the house and try and make this even stronger and as good as it can possibly be. So Joe, are you left with some lingering thoughts or questions at the end of today, the first day, not even full day of the Biden administration? You know, Jessica, we've been doing this show now for about six months. I've been reporting and producing radio and podcasts about the Trump administration since before it was an administration. And after all of this time, looking back at all of this, I am left with the feeling that I'd had this whole time. Was this an aberration? Americans have showed in the past three elections that they will vote for change. They elected Barack Obama twice. They elected Donald Trump. These are you know, largely understood to be agents of change in our society, how radical they were, history will tell. The other thing I'm left with, Jessica, is that it didn't have to be this way. We have a coronavirus. We have, the, you know, the China's influence on the global economy. We have America's perceived diminishing influence in the world. We have record divisiveness both in our society and in our government. Where do we go from here, Jessica? We've got to get the pandemic under control. This is going to be a colossal challenge. Uh, finally, Jessica, I think the last thing I want to say is that we have a lot of work to do. The aforementioned divisiveness. We have a single party right now, the Democrats controlling the executive branch, the House, a razor-thin majority in the Senate, as I said before. We have a possible impeachment trial coming down. You know, this feels like a hangover from the previous administration. But we have so much work to do, Jessica. And more than anything, I am looking forward 
to talking with you and our experts about those things on our podcast. Well, we do have a lot of great experts coming up. We have some members of Congress, I believe a senator coming up, uh, soon to be confirmed. And we are going to be talking about the Senate trial. And I believe that it absolutely should go forward, even though I think it's not particularly popular with the Biden administration, because, you know, it takes a lot of the news cycle away from them. And it's really important what happens in those first 100 days. And you can argue that we're still looking back at the last 100 days with this impeachment trial. But for a number of reasons that we'll talk about, I think it's really important to go through that process. So, Joe... Happy first day of the Biden administration. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you, Jessica. It is absolutely always a pleasure. As I said, I look forward to having these discussions. I thank our listeners for riding along with us. We are just getting started. So hang on, everybody. You can find Joe across the socials, as he says, on In-Depth Day. Me on Twitter at Levin's Jessica. The show on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Everybody, thank you for being with us. Please ask us any and all questions that you have. We're looking forward to all of the things that we have to talk about, and we wish everybody the same sense of semi-optimistic relief that Joe and I feel. Have a great day, everybody.